0: Yeah, it's my delight to be here with you guys. So, we're going to uh, on page five is the the beginning of the second session, and I titled this "Living in Light of the Gospel," Um, and and the tricky thing about categorizing stuff, even though and making distinctions, even though theology, the process of theology is about making distinctions. The difficulty is. you you never leave behind your faith when you move toward loving people. The two work together, which is why Paul constantly uses faith, hope, and love together. And in the same way, you don't leave behind the gospel when you go forward to live and follow Christ. And so I have a quote there from Tim Keller, where he says, most of our problems in life come from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. Pathologies in the church and sinful patterns in our own individual lives ultimately stem from a failure to think through the deep implications of the gospel, and to grasp and believe the gospel through and through. Put positively, the gospel transforms our hearts and our thinking and changes our approaches to absolutely everything. Now my goal this morning is to show you how the gospel changes those approaches in Paul's life. We talked about it uh, last night with the opening section. Of uh, imitating Paul in his pattern of faith. But now I want us to move into this area where Paul articulates his ministry to the Thessalonians and, and how he does that. Um, I, I have, when I was pastoring in, in Rossville, I had a lady who was actually uh, the mother of one of my elders join the church and. When she went through the new members process, she told me, "Pastor, I just want you to know every church I attend has problems. Things seem to fall apart wherever I go. And so I want you to know that I just think that that's what's going to happen." And at the time, we were we were doing really well. We were we were the furthest east reformed church out, out of Memphis and we were hoping to plant another church in a smaller county east of us where there wasn't a Reformed church. Had uh, three or four elders, a couple deacons. And uh, in my youthful arrogance, I thought, this is not going to happen here. I've got everything fixed, and we're going to be good. But I told her, I said, you know, I, I pray that doesn't happen here, and uh, that, that we things go well and it's okay well sure enough as is the case in any ministry a couple years down the road we hit some really hard problems and one of those problems was connected to her and her son and she reminded me when this happened i told you (laughs) that these problems tend to follow me now she's living out of out of a certain story she's living out of a story that pain and suffering and problems in life just kind of follow her and that's her lot and she interprets the problems in the church that were happening to us as connected to her specifically instead of looking at those problems that are common to everybody as part of our growth that's two completely different ways of looking at a situation and I want us to see Paul's language uh, this morning as Properly interpreting and understanding those experiences and ministering in the midst of those kind of changes, those kind of difficult situations. Um, one of my favorite quotes is on page 12 of your booklet. I, I forgot to mention last night that pages 11, 12, and 13 have just some short, brief devotions that are connected to the sessions that we're doing. And I remember uh, at the Desiring God Conference, the national conference at John Piper's Church up in Minneapolis, Minnesota back in 2008, one of my favorite writers and a professor I had at RTS was Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, Sinclair was the main keynote speaker here. and He participated in a panel discussion and Justin Taylor asked, asked him this question. Can you say something about the importance of the doctrine of union with Christ? Now in class, Sinclair would always highlight that union with Christ undergirds every theological aspect of our doctrine. It it is the gospel. You being united to Christ and being connected to him is the essence of the gospel. And Ferguson's answer is one of the most helpful descriptions of union with Christ I've ever heard or read. And he said, you begin to understand that from the moment you become a Christian, you are someone who has died to sin, and been raised to a newness of life. You are somebody over whose life the dominion of the power of sin has been broken. You begin to learn to interpret your life in terms of what God says about you because you're united to Christ instead of interpreting the gospel in terms of where you are in your struggle. It's that last expression that the Christian life is about this, interpreting your life in terms of what God says about you because you're united to Christ. Instead of interpreting the gospel in terms of your struggle. Most people in the church interpret the gospel in terms of their struggle. Most ministers (laughs) interpret the gospel in terms of their struggle. I do it. You guys do it. It's how we live. It's our root way to live. And you have to challenge that story constantly in your ministry and your life it is that notion of how you interpret your life whether you interpret your life in terms of what god says if you interpret your life in terms of the gospel or you interpret the gospel in terms of your struggle that we're going to look at with paul now that notion of union with christ i have in your study guide is important for paul it is the most common expression in his epistles i had on there there's over 160 expressions of the notion of union with Christ be at the beginning of the letter where he addresses them as being in God the Father and Jesus the church in Christ or occasional verses throughout his epistles where he talks about being in Christ or in the Lord or some kind of expression like that that expression is the core reality of the gospel his death and resurrection gets applied to you by that union, that participation. And that union is so mysterious and so deep that God created marriage to reflect that union, according to Ephesians. He did, God didn't create marriage and go, oh look, that looks like Jesus and his church. God had that plan for that union and participation with Christ, and he created the most deep, mysterious of human relationships to reflect that union. And so it's at the core of our growth. So I have a few verses here on page five going on to page seven that I want to highlight that are, I would call rather big verses, if you will, <laughs> paradigmatic verses uh, of this doctrine. So first of all, Romans 6, 11 through 12. Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make it make you obey its passions. Now the book of Romans is another one of my favorite books in preaching through it. Romans 6:11 in, in when we're looking at the doctrine of union with Christ and growth, I think it would be helpful to make a distinction um, it, theologically this distinction came out from a grammatical awareness of what's Paul's saying in the New Testament it's the terms indicative and imperative now don't go to sleep on me early in the morning because I've shifted to a grammatical discussion every time I I have to always preface it when I preach this and and tell them hey look I'm going to say these two words and I promise we're not going to a grammar lesson the indicative theologians started realizing that Paul used that kind of language to refer to an accomplished fact something that has been accomplished that is true and doesn't change and then the imperative is just another word for a command it is the basic structure of paul's reality of living out the gospel that indicative imperative structure it's the statement that you are dead with christ that's an indicative it's a statement of fact something has happened to you let me give you the classic example outside of paul the ten commandments when we talk about the ten commandments we usually start with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. That's not where the Ten Commandments start. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of bondage, out of slavery. That's the indicative. Even in the Old Testament with the Ten Commandments, there's an indicative, there's a gospel statement where God brings you out of slavery and bondage and it's an accomplished reality and then he says, now live this way. Here's the imperatives, here's the commands. All commands in scripture are rooted in an accomplished reality. The reason why is the gospel. In other words, the reason why is you cannot love God properly and love neighbor properly if you think that love is always trying to accomplish an acceptance with God. You can't love God and your neighbor well if you think that that love is trying to get God's pleasure, God loves us for, we love God because he loves us first. God makes the initiative. God takes the action. God demonstrates that love to us by sending his son to die for us before we were ever born. And so God's action is first, which is another way to say grace, God's action is first, and then it flows out into our response. So that indicative imperative structure is all through Paul. If we were to take, if we were in Colossians, we'd spend a lot of time in Colossians 3, which is another passage uh, that I have on here for union with Christ. Uh, Let's see, it is, I think I put Colossians 3. Let's see. Oh, maybe I didn't put it in there well it's on the devotional so if you look over to the devotional oh yes that's why i didn't put it on that list i had to pause for a moment and think how did i miss that so i put it in your devotional on page 12 my apologies colossians 3 1 through 4 if then you've been raised with christ seek those things which are above if this is true then live this way where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's the indicative gospel statement. And then right after verse four in Colossians, Paul runs through all this list of things you should do and not do. But he's telling you that because of the reality that you're connected to Christ. So that indicative imperative structure is important. So jump back to page 5 for Romans six eleven. The very first imperative in the book of Romans, the very first command is not a command where, you're, where it's like, okay, gut it out. The command is consider yourself dead. The first command is that you re- reframe your identity, that you reorient your thoughts. The first command is that you should consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That's what union with Christ does. That's the reality of this living in light of the gospel that's at the core of what we're looking at. Second Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. That is union with Christ, participation with Christ, being in Christ. Galatians 2.20 is a classic passage, a passage that a lot of people end up saying is one of their favorite verses but consider how mysterious it is, right? We, we, we quote it and we say it, but I have been crucified with Christ. I don't think any of you were at the cross with Jesus. <laughs> There's something mysterious about Paul's ability to say I have been crucified with Christ. I personally think his doctrine of union with Christ is connected to the Old Testament concept of covenant. That covenant participation that we value so much as Reformed believers that God sees you participating in that death. And so he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the doctrine of union with Christ. Uh, Let's turn on over to page seven. Uh, There are three verses I put from Ephesians because I wanted to highlight that a lot of our doctrine, a lot of our theology that we teach is rooted in this truth. So even the great um, notion of blessing, Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. (coughs) Paul, Paul doesn't pull back on that. Every spiritual blessing is ours because we're in Christ. Or in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. According to the riches of his grace that happens in him because we're connected to him and in him we have obtained an inheritance and you pro- probably know Ephesians 1 is one of those passages that talks about predestination and that predestination is in him it's not some abstract thing it's connected to that identity in him so that understanding of union with Christ is the core of in my mind and I think what Paul's doing is the core of the gospel and so when we come to look at Paul's pattern here under B we want to think through Paul's ministry here in our life and we want to think about how Paul interprets his life in terms of what God says Paul does not interpret his struggle in terms He does not interpret the gospel in terms of his struggle. He does it the proper way. So let's look in, uh, this is in uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter two. I'm gonna read it so you can hear the whole context. So Paul finishes chapter one and, and his recounting of what happened to the church there. And now he moves to his ministry. For you yourselves know, this is uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. For our, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God be entrusted with the gospel so we speak not to please man but to please God who tests our hearts for we never came with words of flattery as you know nor were the pretext for greed God is witness nor did we seek glory from people whether from you or from others though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children so being affectionately desirous of you we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up a measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, let's look through this story that Paul tells in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 and think about the language that he uses as he tells his ministerial story. So the first thing Paul writes, for you yourselves know, brothers, that are coming to you was not in vain. The very first thing he says is that his ministry to them was not in vain. The suffering that he was going through was not in vain. Now, as we highlight these expressions that Paul uses, let's ask the question, why? Why is he saying this? Well, what's his point? And I think his point, the reason he's saying this is because, if you look right after that, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, we still have boldness to speak the gospel. So let's get behind why he would say this. There was intense suffering at this church. We know from Acts 17 that Jason was thrown in jail with other people. And so if you're interpreting the gospel in light of your suffering, then here's how that story goes for these Christians. Well, Paul came to town and preached about this Jesus and Jason got thrown in jail and we got, we got persecuted. And that's not what I was signing up for. And so you either start to think you did something wrong because you're suffering, or you start to think that whole message is wrong and I'm going to turn away from it, which as you read through Thessalonians is Paul's great fear that their suffering is gonna make them turn away. So what he's doing here is reframing their minds so when they see this suffering, they know that suffering doesn't mean ministries in vain. Now, how in the world can you say to someone, your suffering does not mean your ministry's in vain? The only way you can say that is because of Jesus. Because the greatest example of suffering in the history of the world was the Son of God who died on a cross. And the paradigm, the pattern of that death and resurrection, that suffering to glory, is the pattern of the Christian life. So when Paul says his ministry is not in vain, he's trying to get them to view their suffering in light of the gospel. So he's trying to force a shift in their thought process. So Paul is not interpreting his suffering as if it's a judgment from God. He's interpreting his suffering as if it's part of his relationship to Jesus. It's two completely different ways to view life. And most often, when I'm talking to someone who's in the midst of their own suffering, our mind falls back to thinking, what have I done wrong? I, <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I, uh, I was, it was a Saturday night. I've never used this illustration because it just happened, but this is what came to my mind right now. It's just a bunch of us men. So um, I had to preach the next morning. And I felt this intense pain. It was about 10 o'clock that put me on my knees. I thought, I have to use the bathroom. And I couldn't use the bathroom. And I hurt deep inside of me. And this cycle through about three times, broke me out in a sweat, and I thought, I'm dying. And in my head, I thought, what have I done wrong to let this happen? And and after I... my. What, what what was happening to me, I, I was so tired after the third cycle of this, I just fell asleep. Right before I fell asleep, I, te- I told my wife, I said, look, I'm gonna text you, the assistant minister at this church, because if you have to take me to the hospital in the middle of the night, you need to tell him I'm not making it tomorrow. Well, needless to say, this was an enlarged prostate that my doctor found out on Tuesday. First time I had experienced that pain, broke me out in a sweat, I couldn't move. In my mind, at, at, I've written a book about this, and my mind goes to thinking, what have I done, God, to let you do this to me because I'm supposed to be preaching the morning? Why is it that our minds fall back into that pattern? Mm-hmm. It's the very nature of the fall. Yeah. It's the we're, way we we're think human, through we're things. Human. Yeah, we're human. And the gospel is about the process of reorienting that mind so that you view things as Paul does. And so Paul does not want them to interpret their suffering in the wrong way. The other way to interpret is struggle, and and that's what Sinclair Ferguson said in the quote and what I'm trying to uh, convey is that Paul could have done this. Well, the gospel failed in Thessalonica. They're suffering. They went through this. I'm suffering. The ministry didn't work. But Paul doesn't interpret things that way. So his statement about the ministry not being in vain is a deep statement related to his union with christ and that suffering and and his belief in god's power and love i have had to tell myself this over and over at different times in ministry and it's interesting how suffering and trials are the things that bring this about because when my ministry was going well i thought I, i was doing well i thought this is great we're doing things right but that's not the point whether it's going well or not There's a pattern at which God is calling us to follow him and live out that reality of Christ. The second point, Paul says he was bold to speak the gospel in verse 2. He says, We have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now again, he highlights that there was conflict going on, but he did not draw back from speaking about the gospel. Notice his expression, we have boldness... Where, where was his boldness located? His expression is in our God. His boldness was not because, and I think Paul was, I think Paul was one of these guys that was an in your face guy. I mean, I just imagine him being one of those challengers who's like, this is how this ministry's going. And it was his personality. He gets in a fight with Barnabas and, and they part ways. But when he, when the rubber meets the road in his life, his boldness, has to be rooted in his god and so he was bold to continue to declare the gospel Um, this is what jesus did there was a significant conflict all through the gospels with jesus ministry the religious leaders of the day were challenging jesus and jesus continued to be bold so paul paul that little phrase is key it's an extension of paul's union with christ so we see his ministry's not in vain, not because he was clever, but because he was united to Christ. His, he's bold to speak the gospel because he, he, he has that boldness in God, in that reality that he's connected to God. And then the third one that I highlight here is Paul was approved by God. Paul let his approval come from God and not what was around him. Notice verse four. He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now this is another way to look at that union with Christ. right? Being approved by God is not because his ministry is going well, in fact, if you interpret that ministry through human eyes, it does not look like it did very good. Can you imagine, I'm astounded at all, Paul goes and establishes a church and gets a handful of people. I don't know, under 10 probably in most of these places. And, and that man travels all across that region from Jerusalem to Rome, planting these little places called Christian churches. And within a couple hundred years, that gospel just spreads all over the world. He, when he went, had to have a view of the world that didn't count God's approval or God's, the success of the gospel in numbers sitting around a table. And so in this case, his approval coming from God is, is another way of looking at his life being hidden in Christ. It's not just a phrase for Paul. None of these are just throw off phrases. These are realities that are deep inside his soul. So Paul was approved on the basis of Jesus. And, and I think that's important. I can't tell you how often after I preach or teach that because of whatever this self is inside of me, some psychiatrists, psychologists call it an ego or false <laughs> self or whatever you want to call it, is looking for approval from people. That I want, I want you guys to like me and I want this to go well, and you leave saying, that was really helpful because there's a part of me that wants to be liked and approved by you. And you want to love people and minister to people because there's a part of you that wants those people to like you. That's not a bad thing. We want to be liked and loved. But if that becomes the fuel of our ministry, what are you going to do when they don't like you?
1: What
0: are you going to do when you have to cross that road as a session, as a group of men on a very difficult case and they're not going to be happy with the decision, but you know that that decision is the right thing. Paul's approval was not based on on the flattery or appeal of the congregation. That approval was based on God. So here's how it works. Since Paul was approved by God because he was united to Christ, it changed the way he lived. He didn't come to Thessalonica to fill the need of an approval from man because he didn't have to seek the approval of men. That's why Paul says in verse 5, I didn't come with flattery, wor- flattery. I didn't come with flattering words. I didn't have to do that. And in Paul's time, there were these traveling philosophers who would go around and they'd come with flattering words and they'd get your money, which is why he also adds um, as a pretext, pretext for greed. He says, um, so verse 4, Just as we have been proved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor pretext for grief, for God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether you or others. That's not how he came. Now, what I want you to see is all these words he's using to describe the normal course of ministry, where he's not trying to flatter people and puff up their ego. He's not trying to be greedy and take their money. All of that is flowing out of his reality of union with Christ because he's approved by God. And most of the time, those actions, flattery, the greed, all that is an attempt to find approval. All that is an attempt to build yourself up so that you can have the internal sense that you matter. That's what we're all looking for. And what the gospel tells us is we matter beyond our wildest expectations from being united to, God, to Christ because of what God has done. So these three, the first three patterns that I have here are all three big patterns that highlight that Paul is living his life and doing his ministry in light of his union with Christ. And that connection, if you guys can make that connection through his letter right here, you'll see it everywhere. You'll see it every time he turns around and talks because he says things that gives you clues that his behavior and his ministry is flowing out of the gospel. We'll often read this, and I've heard some of the books that I read when I did my book on Thessalonians would take this chapter as an example of ministerial service, which there are helpful points here, right? Don't lose hope in the ministry, it's not in vain. That's important, but if that's all you say and you don't root it in the reason why, you're not gonna have any power to make it through the hard time. Be bold to preach even in the face of suffering. I heard that in the church I grew up in, but I never was told why. i never had that boldness to preach connected to the sovereignty and power of God in union with Christ. If you don't connect it to the source, then it's just helpful words that may help you at one sermon, but then when your rubber meets the road in ministry, it's gone, because you don't have the underlying narrative that Paul has that governs that whole reality. Does that make sense? All right, so that's what I'm hoping to to highlight there with with those three, so there's a, before we shift to point four, let's stop and see if you guys have any uh, comments or Thoughts or anything you'd like to share before we shift gears to the to the virtue there. I can get carried away and start talking and preaching and then forget to stop and say, hey. I was struck as you talked about interpreting suffering as something other than punishment. A lot of the infantry guys I've met have a actually pretty correct view of suffering. Really? You know, yeah, this is part of my story. Yeah. I mean, Air Force guys go out and they're like, oh, it's suffering, it's so awful, what did we do wrong? Infantry guys go out and they're like, yeah, it's suffering, it's infantry. That's interesting. <laughs> they, they're That's using just... that story to interpret their personal events. And then the Special Forces huh. guys go out and they're like, I'm suffering, I love it! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. My job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, some institutions do a better job of inculcating that into the mind. The next section here, still in the same passage, but what I highlight here is the notion of putting on Christ of the virtues of loving the church. We got a leak there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I read somewhere in one of the books here they said there was a leak in the roof. Uh oh. Right.
0: So I have um, six aspects of his virtue that are reflective of his union with Christ. So, so those first three are big picture things that are that are helping us connect that Paul's behavior and action is rooted in Christ. These he doesn't always directly connect them, but if you get the first three, you realize the overflow of the love is coming out of that dynamic so first paul was gentle he says in verse seven we were gentle among you and and his metaphor is like a nursing mother (laughs) taking care of her own children now that's astounding to me that the apostle paul the grit and grind of the apostle paul uses the metaphor of a nursing mother taking care of her own children to highlight gentleness Because he realized that part of the ministry is knowing when to be gentle and when not. Now notice how he bookends this. I should have added gentle like a mother. Because the the last point is he says he was like a father. The sixth one, like a father with his children. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted you and encouraged you. Paul's able to shift gears between those two. We don't pit those two against each other. There are times when I've sat across the table from someone who needs me to be gentle like a mother, and I have to recognize that, and there are times when I need to be exhorting like a father. And Paul recognized both of those in ministry, and both of those flow out of his union with Christ, because there are times in Jesus' life when he's gentle with those apostles, and he's patient. And I read it, and I'm like, oh my gosh, why can't they get this yet, right? But then there are times when Jesus is like a father and saying, why are you falling asleep? Now's the time to act. And so Jesus shifted gears like that and Paul in his union with Christ is recognizing that tenderness from Jesus and that exhortation from Jesus and he's trying to do the same thing in his ministry.
1: I've have, I have seen on, in my time on earth, well, some people, and I'm not good at either, but you would think, you always think, well, they, as they're a minister, they gotta be better than we are. Like a lot of ministers really struggle sometimes with that you know because how to deal with different like soft or hard <laughs> They're they there there have to be one particular style and when yeah. you get into a bad situation that style doesn't work anymore exactly and they don't really know how to take it to, to shift a gears level. yeah
0: mm-hmm. and I think that's a big deal in ministry especially when you get somebody under 40 who is fresh out of seminary and he's like all on fire for Jesus, yeah. and all he has is that one gear. Yeah. And he hasn't had enough life experiences to shift into another one. Yeah. Uh, and and sadly, if, if you get over that age and you have tried to stuff your emotions down and not really deal with things in your life, then you probably have stuck in that first gear. But a lot of times, my times with uh, guys in ministry end up being about trying to get them to be able to see the different perspectives of ministry that way.
1: I think as, as around, you can see around the table here, we get young and old, but it's older guys who've been on sessions before the and the Christian forms. we get a young master career like that, you, you roll your eyes, oh Lord, here we go again. You know, we've been on this road before, you know? And so, you know, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, I understand. And, and that's been one of the um, significant learning experiences. It was, my, my father died when I was 30. And um, it was sudden and shocking, and my dad and I had a good relationship with each other. And that suffering and the the fallout in our family as I helped my mom and stuff was a big turning point for me, because I really thought I had everything together before he died. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought I had it figured out. And then uh, I realized, well, I may know some things about theology, but there's a lot of stuff in life I haven't been through yet. (laughs) That was a big change, and unless you have those kind of stages and recognize those movements, you're in a rough road in the ministry because you treat everybody the same way, and you can just look at Paul's letters. Each letter is couched differently to different churches. I mean, he didn't minister the same way. But even as a even
1: as a individual, a non minister, we run through there. I mean, we chose to change a life. You you know, we went through a situation when my dad passed away. I thought we had a very good family. it was just me and my sister. But, I, just how it, his p- passing or before he went to the hospital, some things happened, and how she, well how she looked at it and I looked at it. I would say oh, our family would be tight, but we, we split yeah. for a long time yeah. because of just different philosophies or different theology,
0: how we looked at things. Right. You know? And yet we thought, oh, we, you know, that never happen to us. Right. It, happens it happened to It happened, that's right. Yeah. Same thing with me. And that, that's one of the most staggering things in the ministry because you think you have the theology in place, you have this, and it's not gonna happen with me when that happens yeah. because we plan for it, yeah. and then it happens, and you're like, what happened? <laughs> and I, this is not the way it's supposed to go. Um, and I think that's why this is so helpful to see the way Paul does this because um, those things happened. Paul and Barnabas split and that wasn't supposed to happen. And, and if it happens with Paul and Barnabas, it's going to happen in our churches. Yeah. And and I, I always, I, I had an assumption before a few things happened with our session that we could always work through problems and sometimes you just can't. Sometimes it doesn't work out. And it may not be something that needs to, and God may use it like Paul and Barnabas to send you your separate ways and do different things. So that aspect of this loving ministry is part of that picture, I think, that um, there, that union with Christ is so broad that it encompasses these different perspectives and stages of life that we go through. Um, I'll just mention the other ones briefly. Affectionate and giving, he says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we're ready. And that was the verse I used last night, to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. So Paul lives out of this reality that comes from his union with Christ that he's not just a talking head about the gospel, but he's affectionate towards them and he's giving of himself. One of the things, I went through a phase in, in my Reformed journey coming out of a very emotional Baptist, fundamentalist Baptist church, where I thought emotion was bad. (laughs) And I was doing everything I could to keep it at bay. And um, it took several years to come around to realize, no, no, these things are all part of the human dynamic, the mind, the heart, and the will. And they have to be seen together in ministry. And if you, if, I tried when I preached for a couple of years to not be emotional when I'm in the pulpit. And it was so awkward. Like, my, my wife was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm trying to be theologically precise. And it's like, you're going to kill everybody. <laughs> you got to stop. <laughs> so but it's amazing how we in our personal experiences run the gamut of several of these things when Paul and by that I mean that I go through a stage where I I don't want to express emotion because I think it's a you know I think it's strength or whatever and then Paul is like showing emotion on every other verse it's like how did I not see this in Paul's life because he's the guy of all the, Theolo- the the New Testament writers, the Reformed tradition locks onto him, and he's a very emotional person. It's like a boiling pot that pops every now and then. So he's affectionate and giving. He labored and toiled among them. He he the affection the affection and love did not negate his work. Mm-hmm. And so he continued to labor and toil among them and uh, continued to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel to them. And he even Uh, uses that language, I think, of being Christ-like when he says you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. And I think that goes back to his imitation of Jesus that we looked at in chapter one, verse six, and chapter two, verse 14, where he is imitating, he wants them to imitate him as much as he's imitating Christ. Now there's one more uh, point that I want you to see I, just, I had uh, viewed this section and looked at this section and thought, okay, this makes sense. Paul's living out his ministry. He's doing his ministry living in light of the gospel. And I could map that out. And then as I studied chapter three, something else uh, dawned on me that he was doing. So let me read to you uh, beginning uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse one. Therefore when when we could bear it no longer now I'm going to read this and comment as we go so you can get the background in case I haven't covered the background yet. Well let me back up to verse 17 in the previous uh, chapter. He says we were torn away from you brothers, okay? So he's very emotionally upset from from the fact that he was in Thessalonica, the city magistrates came and and uh, wanted to arrest Paul and Barnabas. They snuck Paul and Barnabas out by night. So his language is, I was torn away in person, not in heart. But I wanted to, I had this great desire to see you face to face. So Paul longs to be with them and go see them. I wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan Satan hindered us. So he, he, he expresses to them that he's tried to circle back around him for whatever reason, Satan hindered him. Whether Satan blocked the door or when Paul wanted to go, his presence there would have caused a greater problem. We don't know exactly, but he couldn't get back to Thessalonica. So chapter three, verse one, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Now, think about this. Paul left Thessalonica, went to Berea, and then eventually ends up in Athens. That's, that's Acts 17, where Thessalonica, the church in Thessalonica was established. And the end of Acts 17 is that famous address by Paul on Mars Hill, where he's wandering around Athens and he sees all these idols, to the, and then he runs into this one to the unknown God. And then Paul ends up on Mars Hill at the Areopagus in front of all the philosophers of the day in Athens. That's a big deal, right? Paul, and here's the backstory. He's willing to be left alone in Athens to send Timothy back to this church. So put yourself in Paul's shoes. You're standing in Athens, the seat of the philosophical power of the empire. You're thinking, I need to minister here to these people. I need to, I'm gonna go in front of these people and address this or whatever is the case going on for Paul at that point. If I'm Paul, I'm thinking, okay, what's my best ministry option here in, in Athens? Timothy needs to go with me. I need to call Barnabas back. I need to get Luke here. I need to get Mark here. We all need to be here to do this work in Athens. That's not how Paul thought. Paul instead does something so counterintuitive to the way ministry is taught today. He is willing to be left by himself in Athens to send Timothy back to that church. Now, He sent Timothy, and now notice how he describes Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel to establish and exhort you in your faith so that no one be moved by these afflictions. I take it that Paul looks at ministry and since he can't get back to the church in Thessalonica and he's worried about their faith, he looks around and he goes, if I can't make it back, what is the most obvious sign of my love that I can do for this church? Send somebody else. Send somebody else. And who am I gonna send? I'm gonna send the most important person to me. I'm gonna send my son, Timothy. And by sending my son in the faith, Timothy, back to minister, they're gonna know how much I love them. They're gonna know what kind of sacrifice I made to send Timothy, my son. Now, in telling you that story, does it sound like another story? It should sound like the Father sending the Son to us. Yes. Paul's ministry follows that pattern. It's not just a one-off deal. It's in Philippians 2. In Philippians, he sends Timothy to minister to the church because Timothy is his trusted coworker and son. So it's like in Paul's ministry, another aspect of this union with Christ is that he sends the most valuable person back to serve them. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm so possessive of my ministry and other people that I don't think that way. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I don't think... I, send Timothy. No, I need Timothy to go with me to Mars Hill. But Paul thinks the opposite way, and, and, and he does so because he wants them to know how much they're loved. He does so because I think he views his life in union with Christ and so he looks for every opportunity to show sacrificial love to people and he he considers what that looks like at that point that was an astounding moment for me when it dawned on me that he does this not just to the church in Thessalonica but to other churches as well in his missionary journey that's part of this reality of living out union with Christ and if we could read on he's i'll I'll go ahead and read on in in uh, chapter three so you see the rest of the context i got excited and started telling the rest of the story Mm -hmm. didn't do a very good job of holding off the climax there so he sends back timothy to exhort them in the faith so and i love verse three no one be moved by these afflictions he's still trying to get them to reorient their mind and not be moved by their suffering because he says, for you yourselves know we were destined for this. I don't know that I've heard very many sermons preached about how we are destined for suffering as Christians, Mm -hmm. right? But Paul tells them that, for when we were with you, verse four, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that someone somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So he sends Timothy back to make sure to establish them. And now Timothy's report comes back to Paul. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and your love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've now been comforted through your faith. It's that covenantal reciprocity. It's that give and take of the covenant where paul sacrificed and sent timothy but in god's providence timothy makes it back and gives him a report and encourages paul heart paul's heart to hear how well they're doing and he says for we live now if you're standing fast in the lord for what thanksgiving can we return to god for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our god we pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith and so That whole section from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 10 is Paul's narrative story of his ministry to them, either while he was with them or in sending Timothy. And the whole section overflows, if you see it correctly, as living in light of the gospel, everything he's doing. And so then it prompts this concluding section. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you he's highlighting the providence of God may God do this if it's his will and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you that mutual love that comes out of that union so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints so for Paul every aspect of his life is, is flowing out of that union with Christ and, and is an attempt to be lived in light of the gospel. Which so is why I started yesterday with so much of the gospel orientation, so that the dots, you, you connect the dots in his narrative. Anytime. Mm-hmm. Is that the coffee? Yeah, coffee must be telling to shut down. I mentioned last night that we all live out of a story. I don't know your stories. I don't know how you grew up. I don't know your marriage. I don't know your family. I don't know those stories. But those stories in your life shape your life, shape your actions and behaviors. Anytime we tell a story like Paul tells this story, there's an underlying point. There's stuff that helps connect it. And for Paul, it's an intentional, it's it's an attempt to intentionally live in light of the gospel at each point of his life. And my prayer is that you see this in his life and that you start to see it in your life more and more, as you obviously already have because you're sitting here at a retreat talking about the gospel. But that we start to, we continue to live our life more and more in that way, and that you're able to help others see that as well. It's the most liberating aspect of growth in the Christian life, I think, mm-hmm. to live that way. Let me close us in prayer and, and then uh, we'll, we'll chat or talk or whatever want to do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and the life that he lived and how he consciously tried to live in light of the gospel in his union with Christ. And he helps us to see how we should interpret our stories. And Father, we would ask that in our suffering and trials and afflictions that we would interpret our stories properly as your Love is your loving guidance and growth opportunities in our life so that we can allow our faith to deepen in the course of our life. Do not let us be moved by the afflictions we face, but let us call back to you and trust you in the midst of the trial and the journey so that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul that you have established our hearts blameless. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.
1: Amen.